You are listening to the preaching ministry of Christ Church San Antonio. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.christchurchsa.com. Thank you for listening. Beginning in Genesis 2, verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So this is the pain of marriage that we're talking about today. And you might think that's an odd place to have a discussion on the topic of marriage, that we might want to focus on the positive, but we really want to be about being real. And as you saw from the text that we're examining this morning, really, one doesn't have anything to do on its face with the subject of marriage, and the other one only has to do with marriage kind of indirectly uh, in that fall of Adam and Eve in the early chapters of Genesis. But what they have in common is the idea of exposing our sin and our shame, and especially in the early part of Genesis, doing that in the context of marriage. So we may not want to talk a whole lot about pain, but it's a reality. And the first thing I thought of in discussing this idea of pain in marriage is my thoughts were turned to that classic movie, The Princess Bride. And this is a movie our youth saw just some few weeks ago, and you may recall that in this movie, the hero, Wesley, has disappeared and has been assumed to be dead many years by his great love, Princess Buttercup. And he has returned in the guise and identity of the dread pirate Roberts. And he's having sort of an argument as he's kidnapped his love, and she doesn't know who he is, and he's probing to see if she still loves him. And at the climax of this argument, she berates him and says, do not mock my pain. And he says, life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. We're not selling you anything today. We're going to dig directly into this issue of our pain 
in life and in marriage. And you should know that if you're not married today, this has a great deal to say to you as well because it's not a subject confined to marriage. Although there's a lot of pain associated with marriage, marriage kind of supercharges everything about our human relationships and takes them to a new level of intensity. And we'll see that through the subject of pain in marriage. So if you're not married, you'll be able to to see the same sort of patterns in your life revealed through Scripture and our response to them uh, relating to that as well. And if we think about how we approach the subject of marriage in our lives, it's really the case that marriage begins in kind of innocent and playful ways in our lives. We see something about the other person that we love and are attracted to. And a lot of times this takes the form of that cliche that opposites attract. That if you're really driven and intense, you're drawn to someone who might be kind of laid back and carefree. You might be a neat freak and you're drawn to someone who is just kind of all over the place in a free spirit. If you're someone who is stoic and emotionally reserved, you might find yourself attracted to someone who is emotionally all over the place at any given time. And so we see these things in our relationships and we become drawn to each other. We have these desires for each other and they end up kind of being expressed through this form of marriage. And if you really want to make this short and kind of short circuit the idea of pain, then you can look at it from this perspective. If you want to know how to have a happy marriage, because you may know some folks that you might think they may be Christians, they may not be Christians. A lot of times if they're not Christians, they may have happier marriages than you have because they're chasing the same idol together. Their desires aren't conflicting. Their desires are aimed in the same direction, worshiping the same kind of false idol, false God. And that's a good way to be happy for a while. But what we want to seek is joy, something deeper that comes on the other side of this pain that we find So basically, the idea that we're looking at here today is that pain comes through the conflicting desires of our heart being revealed through the intimacy of marriage, but joy comes through preaching and living the gospel to each other. Pain is there under the surface but it becomes revealed when these conflicts and desires of our heart express themselves through intense relationships, especially marriage. And joy comes through the gospel being applied to those situations as we preach the gospel and teach Jesus' sacrifice to each other and repent and turn in faith to him. The Apostle James says, you know, you can ask what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war 
within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And he continues and said, you, you adulterous people. And he's talking not in the context of marriage, but my desires fight and war within me as a single man apart from my wife, right? So if you add another person to that mix whose desires are fighting and quarreling within her as my wife, how much more volatile does that mix become? So when you look back at how relationships and marriages start, they start innocently, you recognize something in the other that completes you and enchants you. They're driven and you're quiet and carefree. They're intense and you're not. They're, uh, they're focused on your career and you you love to be around your family and you feel like you complement one another. These desires and quarrels within you rise up when you're married, don't they? These things that are an enchantment to you when you're in the early stages of a relationship, when you're in a courtship and you're engaged, they're, they're exciting, they're new and they're novel. But when you become married and the pressures of life intrude and you see not just the surface of what attracts you to the other person, but the depths of the conflict and desire within them as you move through marriage, what was enchanting can become annoying. What is annoying can become distasteful. What is distasteful can become on that Saturday night or on that Sunday morning when you're gathering the children for church, on a Tuesday evening when the taxes are due and the bank account is empty, when it's Thursday night and the kids are fighting going to bed, these things become not enchanting or even annoying. They become the root of bitterness and conflict and fighting. So how do we manage and navigate this? Well, we see how Adam and Eve did it. If we see what they did in, uh, in the third chapter of Genesis, they hide. Adam and Eve hide from their sin. And their hiding has kind of two layers to it. And these layers form what I'll call an unspoken, silent peace treaty. See, this is where their marriage went. And this is where our marriages, after their fall, begin. This silent treaty goes something like this. I won't call you out on your mess if you don't call me out on mine. You can have your areas that remain untouched and outside of our intimacy, and I'll have mine, and we'll both be happy 
but these conflicts erupt and desires come to the fore, so more and more we cover. Adam and Eve covered their sin not only from God, they hid away from his presence in the garden. You'll note that they also felt that they had to cover their sin from themselves, from each other. So, you know, if they were only doing one, if they're only hiding from God, then their departure away from his presence would be enough, wouldn't it? But it wasn't. They knew they needed more. So they not only hid from his presence, they sowed the fig leaves to where they were no longer intimate with each other and naked before each other. They were hiding who they were from each other. That's where their marriage went. That's where our marriages begin. This is a painful reality to confront, so I want you, as you go about your week, to think about this. We confess and we believe from Scripture that every aspect of our lives is awash and covered with this sinful nature that Christ is redeeming through our lives and will perfect on that final day when we are taken to be with him forever. But until then, every act we take is infused with our sin, and that includes entering into marriage. That when we enter into that most intimate act and relationship, we're doing it partly out of sinful desires and motives, the desire to be connected to someone in a good way, and yet the desire to reserve and hold back. to keep a few aces in my back pocket, just in case I need them. And these things are a recipe for disaster when we confront the reality of what happens in our marriages. You could see from the text that all of these things are part of the war and quarrels that Adam and Eve go through in their relationship. And if you're single or divorced, this is the way and the pattern of your relationships as well. We hold back from true intimacy. We know that we are carrying sin and we seek to shield that from the outside world. We know that our pain is coming from these deep, conflicting desires, but we don't want to confront that reality. We want to hide and believe that in our hiddenness, we are safe. But is it true really to say that our hiddenness makes us safe? And we know the answer to that is no. We are not safe unless by safety we mean that that our brokenness remains unchanged and stable. That we don't allow ourselves to grow and move on. But if we want to grow and find a way out of that pain and brokenness, 
The answer is in preaching and living the gospel to each other. You see, this pain that comes from the conflicts that arise in marriage and throughout our lives only finds its solution in the gospel, which is that Christ, our Redeemer, came and suffered and died on the cross for us. Adam and Eve thought that they were covered up and hidden from the eyes of God in Genesis chapter 3, that they thought they had kind of a solution to that problem. But God's finding them and confronting them exposes that was not the case, that they were not hidden, that they were all the more exposed for trying to hide and run. And the author to the Hebrews, and this is kind of what connects these two ideas together, Genesis shows us the human marriage response to sin. We'll hide, we'll put it away, creating these situations where folks break up in a divorce and people wonder, what happened? We, I didn't see anything. I, I thought they were happy, right? The author to the Hebrews confronts this and says, look, if you want to understand how God operates This is a God that does not operate through shame, but he does operate through nakedness and exposure. The word of God cuts us to the very core, exposes us. Every joint in you that contains sin, every sinew that contains sin, every fiber of your being that needs to be brought to light and cleaned, and repaired, he does that through his word. And in the context of marriage, the Apostle Paul talks about doing this in Ephesians chapter 5. He says that husbands are to love their wives, that we are to cleanse our wives with the washing of water, with the word, that we are then to preach the gospel to our wives not to harangue or harass or belittle for mistakes, but to show them the grace and mercy offered to us at the cross. Wives are not off the hook. Incidentally, the same apostle, the apostle Paul, says in the seventh chapter of his first letter to the Corinthians that we have, he says, You know, your husband may be an unbeliever. Your wife may be an unbeliever, and you're a Christian. You live with them, and you live that Christian life in the power of the gospel with the word. And who knows, your husband may be saved by this. So Paul is saying, your responsibility as a husband, as a wife, is to hold the word of God and the gospel preeminent in your relationship. This gives a new dimension to the idea that you may have heard, which is in the scriptures of headship. That the man is to be the head of his household, the head of his wife. He is to lead with his instruction from the gospel for her benefit, but he is not above and outside the gospel. He is beneath the authority of Christ and beneath the authority of the gospel. And when he conflicts with the gospel, He is to be called and held to account by his wife, by his kids, by all those around him. 
And if you look at the fifth chapter uh, to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, even the idea of submission is contained there and yet has a new dimension in that husband and wife are to mutually submit to one another in the power of the gospel. And so we can kind of superimpose what Paul instructs us and what the apostle writing to the Hebrews instructs us about gospel exposure and the work of Christ to the third chapter of Genesis, can't we? Everywhere Adam failed is where Christ succeeded. And we'll just kind of do this quickly in three parts because Jesus came to us as a prophet, as a priest, and as a king. As a prophet, he tells us the truth. Adam was silent before the tempter Satan. He was silent when Eve incorrectly spoke what were supposed to be God's words to them. Adam failed in his role to preach the gospel to his wife. But there's also living the gospel, not just preaching it. Adam failed because as priest, Jesus came and gave up his life for his church, his bride. Jesus came and gave up his life. Adam stood by. And as I was reading this, I kind of thought, what's going through Adam's mind? He and Eve have the same desire. They are happy in that moment of temptation. He is silent. She's doing the speaking. She eats first. And I kind of think, this is reading into the text a little bit, but I think Adam was thinking, you know, I've got more ribs. I've got ribs to spare. If, if God was right, and in the day she eats, she will surely die, I've got more ribs. I can go back and get another one. He certainly wasn't thinking about self-sacrifice and self-gift and dying before her death dying so she could live. This was not on Adam's radar at all. His thought was self-preservation. But Jesus came and Jesus died for you. And as a king, Jesus comes and he rules our hearts to save us from temptation and to lead us into trusting and following him forever. So as prophet, priest, and king, you should live as spouses, especially as husbands, to, to preach the word of God, to sacrifice and put yourself under the danger for your wife and to rule your family with wisdom and compassion and humility. And we could stop there and we could beat ourselves up about what horrible husbands and wives we are, right? Be like Jesus. You've failed. But now that you've heard a sermon about it, go out and do it, and this time somehow it'll work. If you just kind of put your nose to the grindstone, you put your shoulder into it, you put more effort 
but this is not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is that Jesus is the husband of husbands who fail. That Jesus is the priest who made a sacrifice for the husbands who fail. That he is the king who loves and rules husbands who fail. That all of these things, all of the sin in our lives that brings us into marriage, all the messy sin that just kind of we throw up into our married lives, and the sin that comes when we try to clean up that mess through our own power, this is all sin for which Christ died. It is therefore sin that has lost its power. It is sin that has lost its shame and guilt. It is sin that has no more grip over us. So the message today that as a failed husband, you have new life through the blood of Christ. To trust him that he has in fact ordained the steps for you as a husband to walk in, that he supplies the power for you to sacrifice yourself, that for you wives, that he gives you the strength to correct your husband when he oversteps his role as husband and he's outside of God's word, that he gives you the strength to submit to a husband who is often wrong. Because that's the trick, isn't it, right? I mean, submission, I'll submit as soon as he starts getting stuff right, right? The trick is to submit to a husband who trips and stumbles and falls, and you can only do that in the power of Christ. And as husbands, you can only live and live well as husbands when your families are seeing you fail as a husband and acknowledge that failure and turn in repentance. Because your job as a husband is to present this image of Christ as the head of his church who washes and purifies and cleanses and sacrifices himself. But if that's the image that you think you project by your life, then you're mistaken. Because none of us do. Not consistently, right? We have our moments But if you want consistency, you look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, and you tell your family, in this moment, I have failed. To your wife, in this moment, I have failed. Both of us need Jesus right now. Both of us need repentance, and I need to turn in faith to trust him as my husband so that you can have a husband that's worthy of the name. This is painful, and it's difficult, and it's hard. It's hard for all of us. Luke and Tim would tell you, and I'll tell you now, I'm not up here. Luke wasn't up here last week and will be for the weeks to come because we've achieved and met this standard 
we're up here because God has called us to show that in many ways we've failed and yet there is hope. For those in marriages or outside of marriages, single or married, wherever you are on this journey, you should know that covering up your sin as we can do in marriage and as we do through this kind of secret treaty to limit our nakedness, exposure, and shame, that the only way out of this is the gospel. But it's a freeing reality. If we continue with what the writer to the Hebrews says, so in verse 12 of chapter 4, he says, The word of God is living and active, and it pierces and divides, discerns the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And he continues, verse 13, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Adam, you were exposed. Your fig leaves did you no good. Eve, you were exposed. Fig leaves were worthless. Hiding was worthless. And to all of us here today, our efforts to hide are of no value before the gaze of God. And that sounds like really bad news. It sounds like really the best refuge is this intimacy and comfort that we can get from marriage where we at least have some connection. But the true flourishing of that connection and the true flourishing of our lives is found if we continue with what the writer to the Hebrews says. He says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. He was tempted to abandon his role as husband and savior of the church. He was tempted in every way that we are. He was tempted not to submit to the Father. He was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. So connect verse 16 of Hebrews chapter 4 to the nakedness of chapter 13. We are naked and exposed to God the Father and in, and in danger of judgment. And in this naked state, the writer of the Hebrews says, we go naked and exposed before the throne of God so that we may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. So the writer of the Hebrews says, if you get the gospel and you see the picture of what Christ has done, then in your marriage, you will have the capacity to go naked before God with boldness to receive his mercy for your marriage. If you are single, you will have the capacity to go naked before God and seek with boldness his mercy. This, my friends, is the hope of the gospel. It is the only hope. If your status is single, married, it's complicated. This is the only hope, this gospel message of putting your nakedness before God and receiving his grace and mercy. You see, there is pain in life. Wesley was right. 
Life is pain. But through God's grace and mercy, marriage can draw out of that pain a boldness to go before God, seek his mercy, receive his favor, and find that eternal joy that drives us to love in marriage to begin with and will be the consummation of all history when we are with our Savior Jesus Christ as his bride in his house of wine for all eternity. This is your hope, so let's seek it together as we worship. Father, let's pray. God, we love you because you first loved us. Before the foundation of the world, you purposed and planned to call us as your bride. And in history, to call us to be husbands and wives and children and brothers and sisters. Your mercy and grace know no limit. They extend to the deepest part of our sin and our shame that that is exposed by the work of your gospel in our lives in the context of marriage. We thank you that you bring redemption. We ask that you would do it now in our lives. Make us holy as you are holy in our marriages, in our singleness. In Christ's name we pray, amen.